unsupervised machine learning is very interesting because it does discover things that we never anticipated. That's the whole point, right? Is to say, what ways of thinking that we have not even thought of should we be considering? Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Dion Hinchcliffe. Dion is an internationally recognized business strategist, enterprise architect, transformation consultant, futurist, analyst, and in-demand keynote speaker. Dion is currently VP and Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, where he heads up research and global client advisory into CIO issues, the future of work, and emerging technology in the enterprise, and is widely regarded as one of the most influential figures on digital transformation and enterprise technology. You can find more on his work at dionhinchcliffe.com. That's D-I-O-N-H-I-N-C-H-C-L-I-F-F-E.com. And on Twitter at dhinchcliffe. In this episode, Dion shares insights on the architecture of ideas, creating visual frameworks, object-oriented thinking, the potential of generative AI, and far more. Keep listening to learn from Dion's great insights. Dion, great to have you on the show. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you make sense of enterprise technology, the future of work, changing organizations, and a lot more. So how do you do that? How do you see all of the signals and the trends and make sense of them to work out where things are going? I think what helps is my background really is in uh, enterprise architecture, business architecture. So you really have this, you learn uh, over the course of you know years and decades really about how to, to, to really capture ideas in the abstract, how to separate the, the you know uncounted details that don't really matter to what's the core of the concept. And so, I've, you know, as an enterprise architect, you have to take uh, um, the ideas you have and communicate them or they're not effective. I mean, you, you, you're going to get people to, uptake what you're doing or adopt your ideas or your way of thinking or your frameworks unless you have a convincing way of doing that. So I, one, of the, one of the big advantages I had is that I came up in the 90s where you know, we had a lot of very rigorous discipline around organizing our ideas, framing them up, creating designs around them, architectures around them, frameworks around them. So I think that really helped. So in a way, it's a, you've become an architect of ideas. You do. What's interesting is enterprise architecture sounds like a a very uh, remote, abstract, unapproachable concept, but it really is business architecture. How do we think about our businesses? How do we how do we communicate 
what they do and how they work to everyone. So that yeah, it, it, it really is a you know, I think a vitally important discipline. So one of the I think most outstanding aspects of your work is your lovely visual frameworks. Thank you. So almost whatever it is you look at, you, you study, you come up with a diagram which shows the relationships between ideas and the structures. So how do you go about that? What's the process? When you say, all right, I'm going to do a map of a particular domain, what's, what's the process you take? Yeah, the, uh, I came up uh, in, uh, first in what's called structured methodology, which is really a, a, lot, a lot about how do you apply a noun and verb uh, approach to everything and and same thing with uh, use case notation back when when Yakimson was you know really popular around how do we communicate processes to regular business people and get them to agree that we this is what we should do and we have a common reference and understanding I think that really helped but now I really use my diagrams as a, a form of sense making if I can't draw a picture of it I don't understand it well enough to tell you about what it is. And so one of the first things I almost always do is sit down with a drawing tool and I apply, you know, a number of different ways. It could be structured, you know, design or it could be object-oriented methodology or use case-based approach. But it tends to be something around noun-verb to say, what are the things we're talking about? What do they do? How do they relate to each other? Uh, and I think one of my things my diagrams communicate is those things. And, and I've had people tell me they're way too busy and I've had people say, but... Uh, until I saw those details, I didn't understand how it really worked. So it's very interesting. So, so can you dig into that noun-verb frame? So somebody that's uh, fresh to this, I mean, how would you describe that and how they would apply that approach? Sure. So, I mean, if you're, you're thinking about things like cloud computing, you might think about you know, the things that you have. You have, you have networks and you have servers. Uh, and then what do those things do? You, you must have people that those things provide value to. So I think one of the most important things, and you'll see in a lot of my diagrams, is I try and put us in them. If we draw all this technology and we're not connected to it, we're not in that picture, then I don't think there's much point. Technology for its own sake doesn't have a lot of value. So I think we have to be some of those nouns in there. Who are the customers or who are the workers? What are the stakeholders? So you'll see I tend to put both the technology pieces and us in those diagrams because without technology relating to us, I, I don't think there's a lot of value, and, and, and I don't think there should be a lot of value. Uh, it shouldn't be for its own sake. You'll see both the technology and the human nouns, and then the verbs, like the server might provide a, a result or an outcome over the network to that stakeholder. It says, okay, now I was able to complete my unit of work or my process or write my book or post my blog or buy my product or whatever it is. But you can see how, how we relate directly to that technology. So you, you mentioned a couple of other frameworks or methodologies for framing those diagrams. There's other other approaches. So I don't. I, I can't remember Ross how how much you've been involved in software development. I, th I think you have, have done some. But back in the '90s, there was the big revolution saying, "Let's not." explain to computers how we work in terms of their own language what if we could explain how we work in terms of our own language and so the object-oriented revolution was born and, and there was a bunch of people yes. back in the day who were saying let's describe to computers our thinking in our own terms uh, and, and it's more complicated than that but that was the essence of, of the concept and uh, i had to draw many diagrams i've had to go in front of boards or in front of large government institutions and explain why they have to give us $15 million to make this diagram become a reality. So you become very good at putting the business value 
in that diagram. To this day, I still believe that object-oriented approach, which is also complemented later on by use case notation, use case design uh, approaches, really say, let's talk about the, the specific tasks and then how it breaks down in the concepts. And then let's explain those concepts to computers. But out of that came things like the unified modeling notation. I was about to mention that. Yes, I, I wrote a book on it and I've, I've drawn hundreds of the things, probably even thousands. But all of that was training. You know, people say, well, what, what magical tool do you use to do that? Because if I have the tool, I can do what you do. And I say, well, I just use Keynote, Apple Keynote. But I can do it in any tool. I can do it in Paint and Visio, whatever. It doesn't matter. The hard part is being able to understand the domain. And so one of the other frameworks that came at the, probably towards the end of my, my, my serious technical practice was domain-driven design by uh, Eric Evans. That is, I think, the apotheosis, as close as we've ever gotten to describing in true terms of how we think in a way that we can then easily explain to our, our computers and our machines a design or a framework. So you use a presentation software usually? or Almost always, because uh, almost everything has to be communicated in a PowerPoint deck at the end of the day. Right. You know, I, I still to this day joke that, you know, the world would be a greater place if we had a code generator for PowerPoint. All we have to do is draw it and hit the button and out comes the system or business or whatever it is. But that's still the primary means of, of conveying high level concepts to key stakeholders is that. So I just I work in the, in the I work in the natural medium. I work in directly in the tool that, that we're going to use to communicate. Do you have use a paper? I always experiment with all the new tools. Uh, like there's a, a fantastic app for iOS called Paper, and it's good, but it, it's hard to edit. I've used a lot of the design and drawing tools. At the end of the day, I mean, I've used you know the mind mapping tools, all those, but you can't really get them and make them the finished product. You really need to be working in the what I find at least in my way I do it is you want to be working in the finished medium, whatever you can. Right. No, I, actually, I meant. The old paper, <laughs> the one that came before computers. I think it's a waste. I mean, I know you've had Tim O'Reilly on there, and I've seen him write endlessly in his, his notebooks. I'm jealous because my worry is I can't find that information once I record it. So one of the things I do now is I use a, an application called Otter, O-T-T-E-R dot A-I, and it just records everything. And then it actually, now it, it, it automatically extracts the structure of whatever that conversation was. I can have a 30-minute conversation with a stakeholder or a subject matter expert, and then it will instantly present the summary of that that I can then translate into a diagram. Because, I, you know, I've produced thousands of my diagrams over the last 25 years. Um, they're, they're all over the Internet. And before I had to like go through all of my interviews and everything, I still, I, I, I've always taken everything in, in digital form because it's easiest to use and find and search and, and back up and all of that. So, but now, now the tools today are just so amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I, I, when I'm doing my visual diagrams, I start usually on paper just for the first 10 or 15 minutes, <laughs> just because it's a bit quicker to sort of lay out the ideas and then. I, I start putting it into a, a digital tool. Well, and I love your diagrams, Ross. They're they're fabulous, and I share them on a regular basis. I just the inability to edit paper is the thing that drives me quickly to digital. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to you have to move on so quickly so you can move things around. It's just that it's just for that dump. I find it. Uh, what you know? What's the relationship? Just quickly to lay that down. So, so pull pull back into saying, okay, we're immersed in a universe of information. 
And you, you've got some solid frameworks to understand what's going on, but the world is changing and there's new information all the time. You know, what sources do you look at? How do you scan for new signals? How do you filter those to see what's relevant? How do you bring those into your thinking? You know, what are your, what's your process for making sense of information immersion? It's probably considered a little bit trite now, but I, I still use social media as my, as my primary filter. Not, not, not the filter they produce for you, but I, like on Twitter, for example, I create my own groups, uh, my own lists, where the people who, who I trust, and I, I know that, that uh, they're most likely saying things that are, that are important and worth paying attention to, I can consult them unfiltered by the, the you know, the, the main social media service, uh, but, but I, and I can access my own filters. So I've got custom designed lists that I, I go in and I look at. Um, but it's interesting. I, I try to be very careful not to read too much about new things from other people until I've tried to understand them first. Because what happens is, is I learned this in design, you know, doing lots of design work, is that if you let your thinking be influenced too early, by others, then you go down their paths as opposed to new paths you might have discovered if you hadn't hadn't encountered that information. So it's very tough to be a futurist because I know Ross, I know you are too. You need to have some clue that something is important out there. But I might only use it as a signal. If I, I even see them talking about it, I, that might be enough for me to go and try and think about it myself first before I dive into the early thought leadership that's coming out. So. And that's, I believe, made me more effective. And I think it's, I'm trying to think of the Nobel physicist who really, he did this himself. The one who worked on the, the, uh, the, um, the Challenger disaster, uh, played the drums. Richard Feynman, yeah, exactly. It was his big thing is he would spend 10 years not looking at his peers' research sometimes until he had, had his own opinion on it uh, because he was worried that it would be too influenced. And it made, him, it made him extraordinarily powerful, if late to the party sometimes, right? And I tend to, I tend to lean to it in that direction because it's worked for me very well. And I think you want to be able to see the weather, but you don't want the local forecast until you've, you know, you've really done your own work on it. Otherwise, you can't make a, a meaningful new contribution is the risk, I think. So, so you avoid, I suppose, the, the people who are trying to make sense of it earlier, specifically? I'm afraid of learning too much, yes, uh, early on. Uh, and so what's nice is I've told, you know, people have told me that I have a new, I have a fresh often take on things. And there's a reason for that because I really uh, avoid reading it. I always, always go back. Uh, at least I try to go back and, and see what they said. You know, like the, the big topic today is Web3. And it's such an enormous topic. And there's so much being written about it. And I think, you know, the majority of it's not even correct. Or I could tell that something momentous was happening like it did back in the Web 2.0 days, which you remember I was really closely involved with. But I've come late to the party. I'm five years late to that party, and I'm still trying to stay out of it uh, until I have a take that I think will be the one that's that has the uh, that's going to stand the test of time. So, and if I don't get it, that's okay. But at least I think I I, I have a better shot because I've not followed too closely the the details of the field. It is harder to pull back to form your own frame if you've been exposed to a lot. But in, in Web three, I mean, there's like. 50 different angles you can come at it from. <laughs> and it's much bigger than it, than it came before. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah, everything can be fresh as long as just a rehash of what's already there. There's a lot more angles to bring on it and that they're not necessarily going to be more right because it's still this yeah, emerging field. It is wonderful to be able to try to frame some of the 
you know, potential. Or, or in a way, it's, you start from a frame because it's not just necessarily trying to explain the whole space. Say, well, what is one particular frame on it? Or it's in terms of its applications or its value or its something. I think that that often can be the, the thing which brings the value is the frame that you choose to look at it from. Yes, and you want to be able to provide something to be valuable to to your peers and your and, and, and to the industry in general. You you need to have a take that isn't the same. It's, it's got it has to be fresh. So I enjoy that. Sometimes I get to be first. I'm, it's really great, or I get to be early enough because I thought about it. I went down a road where I was able to see things farther ahead because I I didn't try and just look at the next horizon. I'd like to say where is this really leading us? So where does that go? So I've, I've also been lucky enough to call it early, but um, I've also realized that it's, it's okay if you don't. If I don't have it, if it's not the right thing, I'd rather wait. So uh, after you, so if you're using your Twitter list, for example, and you find things, content shared there, do you then set those aside for reading? Do you bookmark them? Do you? Is there a place, a repository, where you place all of your content or ideas or thoughts? Yeah, I've switched over the years. I mean, way back in the day, I used things like Delicious. If you remember that bookmarking service, something that now we're now we're going back in history, and those were very good uh, and and they were very popular. Nowadays, I use things like Instapaper to just I religiously note things and I and I kind of categorize them so I can find them quickly. They tend to be things I know for sure that I need to go back and read, and, I, and often I don't go back. For, it could be it could be months or years before I go back and look at it. Uh, but I know everything I put there is something that I, I've judged to be significant. And this is the thing that I think is missing a lot from teaching mod- modern digital work skills. We're surrounded by information, but we're never given time or the tools to make sense of it. And sense-making is one of the most important pieces. We're just drowning in raw information and research and insights and thought leadership. But unless you can really think about it, sit down and start to like connect the pieces together, and make sense of it, then it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for you other than maybe you can access some facts and figures. So I think sense-making is a really important piece of this whole process. And these tools, like Instapaper, lets you gather all this and then go back and start to weave this together. And it can take months or years to really, truly make sense of, uh, of a topic or subject. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. So on one point, one starting point, you see something, put it in Instapaper, for example, or some other, you know, read it later app. And on the other end, you're creating diagrams which distill that all, where you've made sense of it all and you're communicating that. Yeah. So is there anything in between that in terms of the ways and that process of sense-making, in terms of structuring or playing with ideas or letting things incubate? What do you do? What, what is that between the sort of the finding the underlying content and pulling that into structure? Well, if you spend a lot of time uh, or any time looking at my diagrams over the years, you'll see that I'm never done. I, I tend to go back, and when I understand it better, I, I'll, I'll say, well, I only understood this topic to this level. And plus, the whole world changed, and the industry changed in, in, in the intervening years. So I've got to catch up on what it, whether it's cloud computing or 
trying to think of you know, something that's really hot right now, um, artificial intelligence or whatever it is. I'll keep it. I'll get revisiting it and saying, well, you know, this is not a dead subject and, and no one should pretend that it even remotely is. I mean, we're, we're, I like to say uh, uh, we're in the cave painting days of virtually all of this right now. So, you know, you and I live in one of the most exciting times in human history and we're at the very beginning of probably the, the biggest transformation uh, that humans have undergone. That's what I believe. I go back and look at this information when I believe I've come to an arrival point in my thinking that I go back and say, all right, what, what did they say? You know, uh, did they? And often they do have things that I didn't consider, but I'm gratified that I often have things that they didn't consider. And then I might merge those. I'll take the best. I mean, we, you know, we're always we build on the shoulders of giants. There's no there's no shame about it. And I try and give credit where it's due. So if someone really did some notable thinking, when I go back and look and go, I missed that, then I will try and credit them. But then I build a new visual. This might go on for you know a decade or more. Sometimes on cloud, I'm still. It's amazing. I was one of the very first analysts to cover cloud in a big way. Still covering it, um, doing keynotes all over the place on the topic, and it's still we're at the very beginning of the story. Most people don't realize that. So I've tried to I put like now these visuals that ten years out. Here's what's likely to happen, and even that is is crude compared to what's going to happen. So it's exciting, but yeah, I, I go back and it's an, it's like an agile process over a long period of time where I go back and revisit. I see what people said after I arrive at conclusions. Um, then I update everything, try to give credit with it where it's due as much as we can, and then revisit everything, my visuals, my my research reports and things like that. Yeah, yeah same for me. It's anything which I've done before is just a reference point for filtering and then refining. I always, all of my diagrams that you'd put uh, beta at the, <laughs> at the top, just exactly. to be able to say this was the first version. Yeah, and I was always always frustrated because I'd put it out as a base saying, "Hey, I got any feedback?" And everyone would sort of say, "Oh, that looks good." <laughs> they yeah. never never give me any feedback because it's sort of they'd feel it was finished, but I didn't ever thought it was finished. It was always just a starting point. Exactly, and I I, I don't do that because people mostly know that, but I do say not exhaustive because I, it's like. The story is never going to end. For some of these, do conclude it is interesting, but most of them have just go on and on. Mentioned it before. There are there any new tools, software tools that you think are interesting or worth looking at, or you're playing with? So, yes, I'm utterly fascinated by the potential of generative AI. So we're now getting these really amazing frameworks where you just describe what you want in a declarative way. You say, you know, here's what I want. And it does most of the really heavy lifting and visualizing things. I'm looking at uh, this one new AI application. Oh, man, I can't remember what it's called. But you just give it a very high-level script, and it creates this incredibly dense, high-quality video of what you just described to it. Uh, I'll have to look it up uh, uh, for you to post in the comments later. But these are the types of things. This next level is like Otter, uh, you know, that narration software can read the entire conversation and, and create an outline, a summarized bullet points of what we what you talked about. We now can, it's interesting, do the reverse process as well. The, these generative AIs can now, you've probably seen like Wamba, Wombo Art, the, the app. They can take a, you know. No, I haven't. Oh, it downloaded out of the app store. It's really amazing. It's this Wombo.ai, and you just, you give it a few words or as many as words as you want, and it will draw a painting. That's, that contains what, everything you described, and, it, and it's quite artistic. And you can even choose a style. And I was like, well, that's impressive, but that's not really useful for business purposes. But these new generative AIs are able to take our high-level conceptual descriptions and create incredibly compelling visual video content 
um, depicting these ideas um, and put, you know, it's really a narrative and very human centric. And I'm, so I'm just now starting to play around with these, but AI is now becoming this tool that, that everyone can use to really create communicative resources that, that can, that can help everyone and do it in a fraction of the time. And also people who don't have the 25 years of experience I doing it and me doing it can do it in like just a few days. It's very interesting. I think one of the, the most important insights from AlphaGo's beating all of the best human players at Go was the fact that the best Go players in the world, you know, a game which has been played for two and a half millennia, learned strategies that they'd never come up with before. So we are learning from the AI as to how it, to do it better as humans at, at a very conceptual, very... Yeah, you know, intellectual frame, not just in terms of tactics or strategies or anything tactical, but just these whole new strategies or frames of thinking. I actually did follow that a little bit, you know, and I do always say, but look, we actually did build that, so it's it's not like we don't get some credit for that. I think that's important. I always really try and bring that human aspect back to it. It's like, well, remember, we are co-evolving with our art creations. This is not happening in a vacuum, and the, and, and that's very encouraging. We also must be extremely careful not to take the maybe the 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 downsides of of you know humans and 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 code them in ai but we are seeing unsupervised machine learning is very interesting because it does discover things that we never anticipated that's the whole point right is to say what questions aren't we asking what ways of thinking that we have not even thought of should we be considering and so yeah it's a very interesting time so what are any next steps for, I mean, are there things which you think you could do to develop or working on in terms of enhancing your information and insight and communication methodologies? Well, it's interesting. I'm torn about it, but video is now the new way to communicate. Uh, I think you or I tend to prefer the text uh, description. We grew up in a way where we, 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 we learned to read everything very, very quickly and process it. And you know, I now have seven-year-old twins, and I know that they're, they're growing in a much more visually rich universe than we ever even can conceive of, right? Uh, you and I probably grew up with just a handful of, of channels on fixed programming. They have unlimited channels that are always trying to give them what they most want to learn next, right? Or most want to know or experience next. These things they have AIs that study what they learn and try to give them more of what they want. And that's both good and bad. I, you know, I, my son is amazing. He, he watches science videos all day and all it is is trying to figure out what other science things he wants to know and give it to him. It's amazing. Um, and my daughter less so. Um, it, it's a, it's incredible. So I'm moving more towards streaming content. I'm trying to create the the video version of my visuals, which is why I'm experimenting with this AI for these different AI frameworks right now that can take my ideas literally as I describe them. If I can describe them in the use case format, it can build the video to explain them. It's and, and in a really compelling um, human-centric way. So my latest content has much more video, but they've been, they're mostly hand-built. And they're, they're okay, but they're nothing compared to what I think I'll be able to do like in a year or two. So um, I'm, I'm going to move into the video world and then hopefully break into TikTok or, or who knows what's going to be hot um, in the next couple of years. But video content is the future. If you can, I think if we can create content that can be consumed as quickly as text, that would be a breakthrough. I'd love to contribute to that. I don't know if I'll get that far, but but I think that's, you know, there is the highest resolution, the highest bandwidth connection we have into the human brain is through the eyes. That's one of the reasons I do visuals. I've had more people tell me I never understood something until I saw your visual. I didn't understand that. 
So I think we can now we're on the we're on the cusp of being able to create video content that can tap more directly into the human brain. I would love to be able to even a minor break doing that. I think it's I think with the tools we have, we can. I think you and I could probably get there. I think we'll need to get there to get to the next level of human accomplishment. So that's that's my stretch goal. We'll see how far I get. That, that's fantastic. I, I, you're inspiring me to to try to do some similar stuff. But yeah, it's that that's fantastic. Um, all right. Well, let's 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 coordinate on that. I'd love to see anything okay. which you do, and I'll I'll try to. Oh, I'll send you what. Yeah, yeah, I'll send you what I'm working on. Concept. Yeah, any any concept frameworks and try to make them uh, visual and compact. Yeah. So to round out any any recommendations, so for our listeners, what would you suggest to them to help them thrive on overload? So if you can't explain something in a sentence, then you don't understand it. So always go to that. Say if you've got thirty seconds to explain even the most complicated concept and you can't do it, if you can't explain something to a three year old, you don't understand it. So try to get there first, then break it down into its constituent components. So what's the simplest set of things that could describe that? And then see if you can draw a picture around it. That's all you have to do. And it's simple as that. And that heuristic will get you far. And if, if you're able to do that, you'll be able to communicate your ideas and convince others. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Amazing insights. Lovely to speak with you. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, thanks so much, Ross. I appreciate being here. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.